Part two of Paul and Virginia. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Ellis Christoph. Paul and Virginia by Bernadine de Saint Pierre. Part two. In the meantime, Madame de la Tour, perceiving every day some unfolding grace, some new beauty in her daughter, felt her maternal anxiety increase with her tenderness. She often said to me, If I were to die, what would become of Virginia without fortune? Madame de la Tour had an aunt in France, who was a woman of quality, rich, old, and a complete devotee. She had behaved with so much cruelty towards her niece upon her marriage, that Madame de la Tour had determined no extremity of distress should ever compel her to have recourse to her hard-hearted relation. But when she became a mother, the pride of resentment was overcome by the stronger feelings of maternal tenderness. She wrote to her aunt, informing her of the sudden death of her husband, the birth of her daughter, and the difficulties in which she was involved, burdened as she was with an infant, and without means of support. She received no answer, but notwithstanding the high spirit natural to her character, she no longer feared exposing herself to mortification, and although she knew her aunt would never pardon her for having married a man who was not of noble birth, however estimable, she continued to write to her, with the hope of awakening her compassion for Virginia. Many years, however, passed without receiving any token of her remembrance. At length, in 1738, three years after the arrival of Monsieur de la Bourdonnais in this island, Madame de la Tour was informed that the governor had a letter to give her from her aunt. She flew to Port Louis. Maternal joy raised her mind above all trifling considerations, and she was careless on this occasion of appearing in her homely attire. Monsieur de la Bourdonnais gave her a letter from her aunt, in which she informed her that she deserved her fate for marrying an adventurer and a libertine, that the passions brought with them their own punishment, that the premature death of her husband was a just visitation from heaven, and that she had done well in going to a distant island, rather than dishonour her family by remaining in France, and that, after all, in the colony where she had taken refuge, none but the idle failed to grow rich. Having thus censured her niece, she concluded by eulogizing herself, to avoid, she said, the almost inevitable evils of marriage she had determined to remain single. In fact, as she was of a very ambitious disposition, she had resolved to marry none but a man of high rank, but although she was very rich, her fortune was not found a sufficient bribe, even at court, to counterbalance the malignant dispositions of her mind and the disagreeable qualities of her person. After mature deliberations, she added, in a postscript, that she had strongly recommended her niece to Monsieur de la Bourdonnais. This she had indeed done, but in a manner of late too common which renders a patron perhaps even more to be feared than a declared enemy, for in order to justify herself for her harshness, she had cruelly slandered her niece, while she affected to pity her misfortunes. Madame de la Tour, whom no unprejudiced person could have seen without feelings of sympathy and respect, was received with the utmost coolness by Monsieur de la Bourdonnais, 
biased as he was against her. When she painted to him her own situation and that of her child, he replied in abrupt sentences, "'We shall see what can be done. There are so many to relieve, all in good time. Why did you displease your aunt? You have been much to blame.' Madame de la Tour returned to her cottage, her heart torn with grief, and filled with all the bitterness of disappointment. When she arrived, she threw her aunt's letter on the table and exclaimed to her friend, "'There is the fruit of eleven years of patient expectation.' Madame de la Tour being the only person in the little circle who could read, she again took up the letter and read it aloud. Scarcely had she finished when Margaret exclaimed, "'What have we to do with your relations? Has God then forsaken us? He only is our father. Have we not hitherto been happy? Why then this regret?' You have no courage. Seeing Madame de la Tour in tears, she threw herself upon her neck and pressing her in her arms, My dear friend, cried she, my dear friend. But her emotion choked her utterance. At this sight Virginia burst into tears and pressed her mother's and Margaret's hand alternately to her lips and heart, while Paul, his eyes inflamed with anger, cried, clasped his hands together, and stamped his foot, not knowing whom to blame for this scene of misery. The noise soon brought Domingo and Mary to the spot, and the little habitation resounded with cries of distress. Ah, madame, my good mistress, my dear mother, do not weep. These tender proofs of affection at length dispelled the grief of madame de la Tour. She took Paul and Virginia in her arms, and embracing them, said, you are the cause of my affliction, my children, but you are also my only source of delight. Yes, my dear children, misfortune has reached me, but only from a distance. Here I am surrounded with happiness. Paul and Virginia did not understand this reflection, but when they saw that she was calm, they smiled and continued to caress her. Tranquillity was thus restored in this happy family, and all that had passed was but a storm in the midst of fine weather, which disturbs the serenity of the atmosphere but for a short time, and then passes away. The amiable disposition of these children unfolded itself daily. One Sunday, at daybreak, their mothers having gone to Mass at the church of Shaddock Grove, the children perceived a negro woman beneath the plantains which surrounded their habitation. She appeared almost wasted to a skeleton, and had no other garment than a piece of coarse cloth thrown around her. She threw herself at the feet of Virginia, who was preparing the family breakfast, and said, My good young lady, have pity on a poor runaway slave. For a whole month I have wandered among these mountains, half dead with hunger, and often pursued by the hunters and their dogs. I fled from my master, a rich planter of the Black River, who has used me as you see and she showed her body marked with scars from the lashes she had received. She added, I was going to drown myself, but hearing you lived here, I said to myself, Since there are still some good white people in this country, I need not die yet. Virginia answered with emotion, Take courage, unfortunate creature. Here is something to eat. And she gave her the breakfast she had been preparing, which the slave in a few minutes devoured. When her hunger was appeased, Virginia said to her, Poor woman, 
I should like to go and ask forgiveness for you of your master. Surely the sight of you will touch him with pity. Will you show me the way? Angel of heaven, answered the poor negro woman, I will follow you where you please. Virginia called her brother and begged him to accompany her. The slave led the way, by winding and difficult paths, through the woods, over mountains, which they climbed with difficulty, and across rivers, through which they were obliged to wade. At length, about the middle of the day, they reached the foot of a steep descent upon the borders of the Black River. There they perceived a well-built house, surrounded by extensive plantations, and a number of slaves employed in their various labours. Their master was walking among them with a pipe in his mouth, and a switch in his hand. He was a tall, thin man, of a brown complexion. His eyes were sunk in his head, and his dark eyebrows were joined in one. Virginia, holding Paul by the hand, drew near, and with much emotion begged him, for the love of God, to pardon his poor slave, who stood trembling a few paces behind. The planter at first paid little attention to the children who, he saw, were meanly dressed. But when he observed the elegance of Virginia's form, and the profusion of her beautiful light tresses, which had escaped from beneath her blue cap, when he heard the soft tone of her voice, which trembled, as well as her whole frame, while she implored his compassion, he took his pipe from his mouth, and lifting up his stick swore, with a terrible oath, that he pardoned his slave not for the love of heaven, but of her who asked his forgiveness. Virginia made a sign to the slave to approach her master, and instantly sprang away followed by Paul. They climbed up the steep they had descended, and having gained the summit, seated themselves at the foot of a tree, overcome with fatigue, hunger, and thirst. They had left their home fasting, and walked five leagues since sunrise. Paul said to Virginia, My dear sister, it is past noon, and I am sure you are thirsty and hungry. We shall find no dinner here. Let us go down the mountain again, and ask the master of the poor slave for some food. Oh, no, answered Virginia. You frightens me too much. Remember what Mamma sometimes says. The bread of the wicked is like stones in the mouth. What shall we do then? said Paul. These trees produce no fruit fit to eat, and I shall not be able to find even a tamarind or a lemon to refresh you. God will take care of us, replied Virginia. He listens to the cry even of the little birds when they ask him for food. Scarcely had she pronounced these words when they heard the noise of water falling from a neighbouring rock. They ran thither, and having quenched their thirst at this crystal spring, they gathered and ate a few cresses which grew on the border of the stream. Soon afterwards, while they were wandering backwards and forwards in search of more solid nourishment, Virginia perceived in the thickest part of the forest a young palm tree. The kind of cabbage which is found at the top of the palm, enfolded within its leaves, is well adapted for food. But although the stalk of the tree is not thicker than a man's leg, it grows to above sixty feet in height. The wood of the tree, indeed, is composed only of very fine filaments. But the bark is so hard that it turns the edge of the hatchet, and Paul was not furnished even with a knife. At length, he thought of setting fire to the palm tree. But a new difficulty occurred. 
He had no steel with which to strike fire, and although the whole island is covered with rocks, I do not believe it is possible to find a single flint. Necessity, however, is fertile in expedients, and the most useful inventions have arisen from men placed in the most destitute situations. Paul determined to kindle a fire after the manner of the negroes. With the sharp end of a stone he made a small hole in the branch of a tree that was quite dry, and which he held between his feet. He then, with the edge of the same stone, brought to a point another dry branch, of a different sort of wood, and afterwards, placing the piece of pointed wood in the small hole of the branch which he held with his feet, and turning it rapidly between his hands, in a few minutes smoke and sparks of fire issued from the point of contact. Paul then heaped together dried grass and branches, and set fire to the foot of the palm tree, which soon fell to the ground with a tremendous crash. The fire was further useful to him in stripping off the long, thick, and pointed leaves within which the cabbage was enclosed. Having thus succeeded in obtaining this fruit, they ate part of it raw, and part dressed upon the ashes, which they found equally palatable. They made this frugal repast with delight, from the remembrances of the benevolent action they had performed in the morning. Yet their joy was embittered by the thoughts of the uneasiness which their long absence from home would occasion their mothers. Virginia often recurred to this subject. But Paul, who felt his strength renewed by their meal, assured her that it would not be long before they reached home, and, by the assurance of their safety, tranquillized the minds of their parents. After dinner, they were much embarrassed by the recollection that they had now no guide, and that they were ignorant of the way. Paul, whose spirit was not subdued by difficulties, said to Virginia, the sun shines full upon our hearts at noon. We must pass, as we did this morning, over that mountain with its three points, which you see yonder. Come, let us be moving. This mountain was that of the three breasts, so called from the form of its three peaks. They then descended the steep bank of the Black River on the northern side, and arrived, after an hour's walk, on the banks of a large river which stopped their further progress. This large portion of the island, covered as it is with forests, is even now so little known that many of its rivers and mountains have not yet received a name. The stream, on the banks of which Paul and Virginia were now standing, rolls foaming over a bed of rocks. The noise of the water frightened Virginia, and she was afraid to wade through the current. Paul therefore took her up in his arms, and went thus loaded over the slippery rocks which formed the bed of the river, careless of the tumultuous noise of its waters. "'Do not be afraid,' cried he to Virginia. "'I feel very strong with you. If that planter of the Black River had refused you the pardon of his slave, I would have fought with him.' "'What?' answered Virginia. "'With that great wicked man! To what have I exposed you, gracious heaven! How difficult it is to do good!' and yet it is so easy to do wrong. When Paul had crossed the river, he wished to continue the journey carrying his sister, and he flattered himself that he could ascend in that way the mountain of the three breasts, which was still at the distance of half a league. But his strength soon failed, and he was obliged to set down his burthen and to rest himself by her side. Virginia then said to him, 
My dear brother, the sun is going down. You have still some strength left, but mine has quite failed. Do leave me here, and return home alone to ease the fears of our mothers. Oh, no, said Paul. I will not leave you. If night overtakes us in this wood, I will light a fire, and bring down another palm tree. You shall eat the cabbage, and I will form a covering of the leaves to shelter you. In the meantime, Virginia being a little rested, she gathered from the trunk of an old tree, which overhung the bank of the river, some long leaves of the plant called hart's tongue, which grew near its root. Of these leaves she made a sort of buskin, with which she covered her feet, that were bleeding from the sharpness of the stony paths. For in her eager desire to do good, she had forgotten to put on her shoes. Feeling her feet cooled by the freshness of the leaves, she broke off a branch of bamboo, and continued her walk, leaning with one hand on the staff, and with the other on pole. They walked on in this manner slowly through the woods, but from the height of the trees, and the thickness of their foliage, they soon lost sight of the mountain of the three breasts, by which they had hitherto directed their course, and also of the sun, which was now setting. At length, they wandered, without perceiving it, from the beaten path in which they had hitherto walked, and found themselves in a labyrinth of trees, underwood, and rocks, whence there appeared to be no outlet. Paul made Virginia sit down, while he ran backwards and forwards, half frantic, in search of a path which might lead them out of this thick wood. But he fatigued himself to no purpose. He then climbed on the top of a lofty tree, whence he hoped at least to perceive the mountain of the three breasts. But he could discern nothing around him but the tops of trees, some of which were gilded with the last beams of the setting sun. Already the shadows of the mountains were spreading over the forests in the valleys. The wind lulled, as is usually the case at sunset. The most profound silence reigned in those awful solitudes, which was only interrupted by the cry of the deer, who came to their lairs in that unfrequented spot. Paul, in the hope that some hunter would hear his voice, called out as loud as he was able, Come, come to the help of Virginia! But the echoes of the forest alone answered his call, and repeated again and again, Virginia, Virginia. Paul at length descended from the tree, overcome with fatigue and vexation, he looked around in order to make some arrangement for passing the night in that desert, but he could find neither fountain, nor palm-tree, nor even a branch of dry wood fit for kindling a fire. He was then impressed by experience, with the sense of his own weakness, and began to weep. Virginia said to him, Do not weep, my dear brother, or I shall be overwhelmed with grief. I am the cause of all your sorrow, and of all that our mothers are suffering at this moment. I find we ought to do nothing, not even good, without consulting our parents. Oh, I have been very imprudent. And she began to shed tears. Let us pray to God, my dear brother, she again said, and he will hear us. They had scarcely finished their prayer, when they heard the barking of a dog. It must be the dog of some hunter, said Paul, who comes here at night to lie in wait for the deer. Soon after, the dog began barking again with increased violence. Surely, said Virginia, it is Fidel, our own dog. 
Yes, now I know his bark. Are we then so near home? At the foot of our own mountain. A moment after, Fidel was at their feet, barking, howling, moaning, and devouring them with his caresses. Before they could recover from their surprise, they saw Domingo running towards them. At the sight of the good old negro, who wept for joy, they began to weep too, but had not the power to utter a syllable. When Domingo had recovered himself a little, Oh, my dear children, said he, how miserable have you made your mothers! How astonished they were when they returned with me from Mass on not finding you at home! Mary, who was at work at a little distance, could not tell us where you were gone. I ran backwards and forwards in the plantation, not knowing where to look for you. At last I took some of your old clothes, and showing them to Fidel, the poor animal, as if he understood me, immediately began to scent your path, and conducted me, wagging his tail all the while, to the Black River. I there saw a planter who told me you had brought back a maroon negro woman, his slave, and that he had pardoned her at your request. But what a pardon! He showed her to me with her feet chained to a block of wood, and an iron collar with three hooks fastened round her neck. After that, Fidel, still on the scent, led me up the steep bank of the Black River, where he again stopped and barked with all his might. This was on the brink of a spring, near which was a fallen palm tree and a fire still smoking. At last he led me to this very spot. We are now at the foot of the mountain of the Three Breasts, and still a good four leagues from home. Come, eat and recover your strength. Domingo then presented them with a cake, some fruit, and a large gourd, full of beverage composed of wine, water, lemon juice, sugar, and nutmeg, which their mothers had prepared to invigorate and refresh them. Virginia sighed at the recollection of the poor slave, and at the uneasiness they had given their mothers. She repeated several times, Oh, how difficult it is to do good! While she and Paul were taking refreshment, it being already night, Domingo kindled a fire, and having found among the rocks a particular kind of twisted wood, called bois de ronde, which burns when quite green, and throws out a great blaze, he made a torch of it, which he lighted. But when they prepared to continue their journey, a new difficulty occurred. Paul and Virginia could no longer walk, their feet being violently swollen and inflamed. Domingo knew not what to do, whether to leave them and go in search of help, or remain and pass the night with them on that spot. There was a time, said he, when I could carry you both together in my arms, but now you are grown big and I am grown old. When he was in this perplexity, a troop of maroon negroes appeared at a short distance from them. The chief of the band, approaching Paul and Virginia, said to them, Good little white people, do not be afraid. We saw you pass this morning with the negro woman of the Black River. You went to ask pardon for her of her wicked master, and we, in return for this, will carry you home upon our shoulders. He then made a sign, and four of the strongest negroes immediately formed a sort of litter with the branches of trees and lianas, and having seated Paul and Virginia on it, carried them upon their shoulders. Domingo marched in front with his lighted torch and they proceeded amidst the rejoicing of the whole troop, who overwhelmed them with their benedictions. Virginia, affected by this scene, said to Paul with emotion, 
Oh, my dear brother, God never leaves a good action unrewarded. It was midnight when they arrived at the foot of their mountain, on the ridges of which several fires were lighted. As soon as they began to ascend, they heard voices exclaiming, Is it you, my children? They answered immediately, and the negroes also, Yes, yes, it is. A moment after they could distinguish their mothers and Mary coming towards them with lighted sticks in their hands. Unhappy children, cried Madame de la Tour, where have you been? What agonies you have made us suffer! We have been, said Virginia, to the Black River, where we went to ask pardon for a poor maroon slave, to whom I gave our breakfast this morning, because she seemed dying of hunger, and these maroon negroes have brought us home. Madame de la Tour embraced her daughter without being able to speak, and Virginia, who felt her face wet with her mother's tears, exclaimed, now I am repaid for all the hardships I have suffered. Margaret, in a transport of delight, pressed Paul in her arms, exclaiming, And you also, my dear child, you have done a good action. When they reached the cottages with their children, they entertained all the negroes with a plentiful repast, after which the latter returned to the woods, praying heaven to shower down every description of blessing on those good white people. End of part two.